Hello, hello. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream show, episode number three. Uh, we're fortunate to have on three illustrious guests today to talk about getting your script pro ready. Uh, we all know that once you hit fade out on the script for the first time, you're far, far from done. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done, but how do you know when your script is ready to be shown to industry professionals and how do you get it there? That's sort of what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, we're joined first by a screenwriter whose first feature is set to be released by Paramount in May of 2021, directed by Antoine Fuqua and starring Mark Wahlberg. Um, you may have heard of them. He's also a writer on the thriller 1031 in pre-production for United Artists, The Juliet for Warner Brothers, and on Training Day on CBS. He is a regular on the podcast, a good friend, Ian Shore. Welcome, Ian. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Live from Hawaii or Kauai or wherever in Hawaii paradise you're at, although your background is not sitting on the beach as you normally are, but that's okay. <laughs> um, also joining us is a uh, TV writer whose credits include uh, Stitchers on Freeform, Rainbow, Butterfly, Unicorn, Kitty on Nickelodeon. He's also a legit magician who has yet to invite me to the Magic Castle where he's a member, uh, but I'm hopeful once the pandemic is over, he will do so. And fun fact, he's the proud owner of Phyllis's desk from The Office. He is Andrew Zuber. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. And our third guest, but certainly not least, is a frequent guest on the show and very popular one who is a screenwriting career coach, a former development exec, and the author of two books on screenwriting and the industry, Breaking In Tales from Screenwriting Trenches and Getting It Right, an insider's guide to a screenwriting career. Links for both of the books will be in the description below. She is the lovely Lee Jessup. Thanks for coming on, Lee. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so our topic for today is going to be getting your script pro ready. All of you have experience with that, either having had pro scripts sold, uh, developed, um, or on the other side, Lee, you're a development exec, a former development exec, and you work with a lot of writers. Um, so we'll jump into that in just a minute. But first, we like to start off with sort of just an industry news topic of the week, just for a couple minutes while we allow people to stream in. Um, what I wanted to talk about today, or what I found interesting, is reopening. I saw yesterday that New York is opening theaters back up, movie theaters, New York City, which is... Uh, a new development, obviously, in this pandemic. Um, production, obviously, has begun to ramp up slowly. And now, again, movie theaters are opening up in major markets. Um, when movie theaters open back up in your area, L.A., or I know normally you're here in L.A., uh, Ian, but I guess in Hawaii or wherever you happen to be, uh, <laughs> are you going to go? What will it take for you guys to go back to the movie theater to feel safe? Um, and what do you think the initial public response will be? Because people have been cooped up for so long not seeing movies. What do you think the response is going to be? We'll start off at the top, maybe Andrew. Um, I mean, I feel like a big part of it depends on the movies. There are a lot of movies that have been coming out that, you know, obviously went straight to streaming services and, you know, and a lot of movies that got held back because they're meant for that big theater experience. So I think that's a, a big part of it is something that's, you know, a smaller story that works relatively well on a small screen versus, you know, a giant action picture or something where you get walls of sound and amazing graphics and things like that. So I, for me, that, that would be part of it, but also just kind of seeing, it's hard to know where the, the numbers are going to go and what, the safety uh, factor is going to look like in the coming months. So, right. Hard to say. Right. Uh, Ian. There is not a movie on the planet that uh, I would risk my life to see. Uh, 
<laughs> so uh, my my plan is uh, like I'm, I'm not even leaving this island until I get vaccinated. Hmm. Uh, and I, you know, once we, you know, get uh, our vaccination rate up, up into the like the, you know, I'd say the high 90 percentile, uh, then I, you know, I can start thinking about going back to the movies and, you know, hopefully that'll be sooner rather than later. We, uh, I was reading that we, we vaccinated 3 million people yesterday. Like we gave 3 million shots in one day. So that's, you know, that's definitely a trend that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and as for the movie theaters reopening, I mean, I, I want movie theaters to survive. Uh, I, you know, all of my favorite cinematic memories have been in theaters um, and so I, you know, what, what, what they need to do to survive, I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. Uh, I just can't be a part of it myself until I get my shots and I see that the majority of the rest of the country has as well. Mm-hmm. Lee? You know, I'm in the same boat. Um, as much as I want to see Dune on the big screen, I'm not going to die for it. Um, I think the trends are going the right way. The opening, the reopening, we're starting in New York, which is our second largest market, but we're only opening at 20 to 25% capacity. So we have to remember that the numbers are still going to be really low because it's still not safe. I think all of us who love movies are eager to get back to that kind of movie theater temple that we've all grown up in and prayed at and whatnot. But I think it has to be done safely. It's encouraging that more and more people in the country are receptive to vaccinations. There's less and less resistance. I think that once the trends are such that imply that you don't have to you know, kind of make a big life decision about whether or not to go to the movies, I think all of us will be back. Right. Um, is there anything that you're looking forward to to seeing in theaters besides Dune, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I just miss the movie going experience. Right. There's lots of titles that I can't wait to see for me, Dune. Sure. I grew up on the Frank Herbert Herbert book. I, you know, I loved the initial movie. Uh, way back when it was kind of a seminal thing for me. So I think that's the big one for me, but there's certainly plenty others that I'm eager to get back and see. Right. Andrew, anything you're particularly dying to see in a theater? Mortal Kombat? Um, Yeah, nothing specific, but as Lee said, I miss the movie going experience. And I don't know about you guys, but part of it for me is uh, obviously it needs to be done safely right now. And so if they are going to make the decision to open up doing it at, 20, 25% is, you know, a, a better option than having the place full. But I love seeing a movie in a crowded theater on a Friday night where everybody's reacting and, you know, screaming at the screen and all that. That's a, that's a great part of the experience for me is the community of it. So right. that's, that's what I would like to get back to when it's safe to do so. Well, and Ian specifically talking about uh, Infinite, your movie is opening in supposedly. It looks like something drastic happens in May, correct? Um, uh, no, actually, they just uh, they just announced yesterday that um, we've been moved to September twenty fourth. Okay, September twenty fourth. Uh, yeah, so basically, like like you know, because everything's getting shuffled around right now. Um, we were supposed to open, you know, August twenty twenty. That didn't happen. We got pushed to May, and then. Because James Bond got pushed, uh, they had to move Fast and Furious 9. So we, we wound up on the same weekend as Fast and the Furious in May. And, you know, to be honest, I don't like our odds. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that's an uphill battle. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I figured, you know, it's, it's going to change no matter what. So, yeah, they, they uh, F9 went to a different date. 
They moved Quiet Place 2 to our original weekend in March. And hopefully by end of September, you know, we'll, we'll be in that vaccination range where lots of people will be excited about going to the movies again. Like, I, I think it's it's a really positive thing that, that we've been pushed that long because uh, people I, I know who have movies coming out earlier in the summer, they're nervous about it because, you know, they talk to their friends and people are still really sketched out about the idea of going into the theater and rightfully so. Right. And I mean, there's something about a blockbuster movie like yours opening to a full house as opposed to, you know, 25% or 15%, I think is the original, what it's supposed to be now or something. I mean, it's so low that as great as it would be to see in a theater, to see it so empty, even though you know it's not your fault, you know that it's not, you know, it's a requirement that they do that. It would seem to be a little disheartening in my my opinion. Well, I mean, but I haven't seen the movie yet. So, you know, maybe right. I'll, I'll I'll watch it in a room that's at 15% capacity and be like, you know what, that's about right. My whole dream, like the thing I've been, I've been dreaming about my entire life is being in a packed house for the opening night of something that I wrote that was huge and thrilling and cinematic and, and getting to see people react to it in the way that I, I grew up reacting to those types of movies. Like, you know, that's, that's been my lifelong fantasy and um, you know, with, with any luck, I'll, I'll get to see that happen. But outside of infinite, like I, I you know, if once things are safe, super stoked about Dune, super stoked about to see what a uh, James Gunn does with suicide squad. Mm. Um, God, what else? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, I you know now that we're not opening on the same weekend anymore, I want to see Fast Fast Nine. Like, uh, yeah, there's there's some fun stuff coming out this year. Right. Um, okay, so we are here to discuss um, getting your script pro ready, and I think that's something that uh, all of us have have dealt with at some point in our careers or especially Lee, you see, I'm sure on a regular basis, writers who need to come to terms with what that actually <laughs> means. Right. Um, so I wanted to start off with Lee as a screenwriting career coach. Uh, you're I'm sure approached by a lot of writers at different levels of ability and in development. Um, what are the most common problems you see with scripts that, make them stand out as clearly not ready to be seen by industry professionals? Listen, they're the obvious kind of surfacing one, which is if somebody just called me a few weeks ago about, you know, his 175 page script. Wow. That's just not going to fly. I mean, anybody in the industry looks at this from a new writer that's not established and goes, yeah, no, this person thinks the rule's not for them. And then there are the obvious things that, again, are all visuals, really chunky, you know, half a page of, you know, single paragraph of action lines or, you know, monologues throughout the script. When people get new material from people they haven't read before, oftentimes they'll just, I do it. I mean, we'll just flip through to see like, what are we dealing with? Does it look like a script? Before we even dig in to say like, does it read like a script? Does it feel like a movie? Does it, do we start with, does it look like a script, right? Does it look like a piece of, of professional documentation that we're expecting uh, to land on our desk. So I think that those are the first things. Um, you know, beyond that, the mistakes are for me um, just not getting the work vetted. A lot of people are so scared of hearing that the work is just not landing yet that they kind of throw it out there and and skirmish away. Um, 
when the reality is I'm a, I'm a big fan of a big proponent of feedback of finding the negative Nellies and having them poke holes in the work because that that's the way you get better, right? It always sounds really good to hear somebody say, I love the script, it's amazing, but you don't really learn that much from it. When somebody comes in and gives you hopefully kind and generous and thoughtful, constructive criticism, as opposed to just saying, this is terrible, why are you writing? Um, hopefully you have something to learn there and that's that's where growth happens. Most people, even those that arrive with kind of the most innate inbred talent um, have something to learn, right? right? And I think that most writers will attest to the fact that being a writer is a learning journey. You're constantly evolving. So you need those people that you can trust to go to who will challenge you to make the work great. Would, what percentage would you say of writers that come to you that obviously have these glaring issues are those that are maybe afraid to get feedback or criticism and those that don't see it, don't believe it, think that their material is ready to go? Listen, I think it's important to remember that filmmaking, while and, and TV writing even more specifically, is a collaborative art form, right? Or it's a collaborative business if we don't want to kind of throw the art element in there. Therefore, you need a lot of people to buy in and sign off. It's not just about what you think and what you think works. If you want to do that, go write a novel. Unless, of course, you can self-fund your movies. And then who cares you know, what people think about the work? But because... In order for a movie to get made, um, in order for a TV show to get filmed, there's going to be sign-offs at every turn. And because of that, you want to really prepare your material for that. For me, notes are an opportunity, right? They're an opportunity to learn. They're an op opportunity to make the script better. I've certainly talked to people who said, I, I remember I talked to one writer a few years ago, and it really stuck me or struck me and stayed with me. Because he said, I, I paid for notes a year ago. I got them and I put them in a drawer because I was too scared. Oh. But that's a missed opportunity to make the work better. Sure. I think a lot of people get notes with the idea of, I just want confirmation that everything's working and it's wonderful, where in reality, it's about let's find out what's not working and how to make it stronger. And that's where the growth happens. Right. Um, okay. So Ian and Andrew, I want to talk to you each about the first script that got you attention. Oh, and I have to mention to anyone watching who has not listened to any of the podcasts that we've done, with any of our guests, you can go to scriptsandscribes.com. They've all been on the podcast before, and they talk about their backgrounds and things like that. So definitely go check those out. Um, but just for those who haven't may already listen to that, uh, Ian and Andrew, the first script that got you attention and or signed by a rep or hired for your first writing gig, uh, what was it and how long did it take you to write and polish and get into the shape where you were able to get that attention and, and, and you know, uh, either sell it or, you know, sign with a rep, whatever it happened to be. So maybe I'll start with Ian. You know, I had kind of a strange path because uh, I I started getting features made while I was in college, uh, but because they were, you know, low-budget indie stuff, I think the the most, you know, there's what, the first one was made for maybe a couple hundred grand. The second one was made for about two million um and neither one of them started my career like I, I thought that like when I got my first movie into production by the time I was a, a sophomore I'm like oh man this is great you know I'm, I'm gonna get a rep out of this I'm gonna start working and that that didn't happen because you know the, the movie played on some you know went to the film festival circuit and then disappeared into the wilds of iTunes um and then 
my uh, I, I wrote a contained horror thriller uh, called Splinter my junior year, and uh, some production students picked that up, and they you know put together a couple million bucks and a director, and got a really awesome cast for it. Went and shot the thing, and it, it you know it was out by the time I was a senior. I was like, okay, this is the one that's going to do it for me. Like this is this is like finally my my big break. But you know nobody really gave a shit because the, the movie wasn't like a gigantic hit and. Uh, I realized that in the indie space, people are really paying attention to the directors more than they are the writers. Hmm. Um, so the, the the thing that actually got people to pay attention to me was my my senior thesis script at, at USC, uh, which was this movie called Exempt. That was basically like uh, I, the way I pitched it was like it's uh, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off set in the world of Grand Theft Auto. Like it's, it's about a bunch of teenagers who have diplomatic immunity and can't get arrested for anything. So uh, that one, I I knew I had something because it, everybody who was reading it and giving me notes was was coming back in you know, with with criticism, but also just talking about how they couldn't put it down. They had to know what happened next, and I I never gotten that type of feedback on a script before. Um, so th- that one, uh, I pitched it at first pitch at the end of the year. It's, it's a pitch fest that they do for all the writers graduating from SC. Uh, I signed with Bender Spank off of that. And uh, about a month later, they took it out and sold it to uh, a studio that isn't around anymore, uh, this place called Overture. Uh, and after that, I was off to the races. Great. Um, so, uh, Andrew, how did your first script that got you attention, um, your writing job? Like, what was it and how long did it take you to write and, and polish and get it to that point? Like, from the point when you finished writing it, the first draft, and when it was, like, ready to be sent out, when it got attention for you? Uh, um, well, I had two kind of firsts because the first actual script script that I ever wrote in any capacity was in high school. I was a senior in high school and I was, I had to make a, senior project and so i decided to do a film and so i was sitting down with a friend on a friday night and he said we should make a horror movie and i said i'll go home and write one so over the weekend i wrote the script and i knew i didn't know what i wanted the movie to be but i knew what i wanted the ending to be so i wrote the ending first and then reverse engineered and figured out how to get there and that was just i i'd never read a screenwriting book i'd never taken a class i was just i was writing it in like microsoft word so i was literally the very first time doing anything like that um but then we made the movie and it actually went to a festival that was like the big it was called the northwest high school film and video festival and it won the top award there um it was like a 40 minute kind of our homage to scream or i know what you did last summer um and so that was a great experience obviously it wasn't like spielberg was on the jury and said ah yeah come come work with me um but that was my first foray doing something like that. Um, and then my first actual script that I wrote, it's funny cause I was having a conversation with someone this week about how a lot of people, you know, you write five, 10, 20 scripts that are all terrible before you get to a place where you're doing something that's actually gonna, you know, get you some traction. Um, and the first script that I wrote uh, was called Marisol and it was based on a, on an article actually that I'd read on CNN about um, a 20 year old criminal justice student at a community college in Mexico who became a, a 
uh, sheriff of her town because no one else wanted to do the job. And um, I was working at a management company at the time. And so they read it and gave me notes. And then I just did a at like a lunch meeting with a producer's assistant and she liked it. And she said, I think my boss would, would be interested in developing this. So we went and ended up developing it uh, at her. It was a company called Intuition Productions. Um, and then they got an actress attached to it. And then the folks at Freeform uh, saw it and liked it and passed it up to their development people. And ultimately they decided it was too dark for them, which I agreed. Um, but the process of writing it I'd read that article and I probably sat on it and thought about it for a year before I actually started to write. Um, and then once I started writing, I, I wrote these are in a day, kind of the first draft. Um, and then the rest of the script, maybe three weeks or so before I had it in a spot where I felt like I could show it to some friends and some, some people I was working with to get feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, Lee, you've oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I just realized I <laughs> I didn't actually answer the part of the question that you that you asked. My bad. I uh, it took uh, it took nine months to to write the 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 script that, that got me attention. It was like wrote wrote the first draft first semester, wrote the second draft for the second semester, and yeah. So that was yeah better part of a year. Right. Although it's interesting how you wrote it in school, so you're sort of forced to write it. Some people can either drag it on forever and ever forever editing it or on the other end of the spectrum you have people who write a draft in two weeks and say okay it's ready to go and both situations <laughs> yeah, can be trouble uh if you're constantly yeah, it's, working it's, on it yeah it's the people in the first group who wind up with careers though <laughs> no i mean people who like yeah yeah no you're right but uh it's just interesting how people how writers uh sometimes they'll be literally re reworking it forever and ever and ever. And then, like you said, there's, a, there's, uh, those are the people who at least are trying to improve their craft. And then others who just write something, slap it down on the page. And then where do I go to get a check for this? Right. Right. Yeah. There's, there's people who think their script is ready before everyone else does. And then there's people who think their script is never ready. Right. Uh, Lee, you've helped, uh, develop a lot of aspiring writers, uh, emerging writers into pros, working writers in film and TV. Um, and I know some of them and, and your, your record speaks for itself, but I'm sure you've had some struggle more than others, even the ones that have been successful. Uh, what sort of stumbling blocks have you seen uh, certain writers face when getting their scripts quote, up to par, you know, getting it up to that next level? Um, is it resistance on some writer's part to make changes because, you know, their ideas are gold? Or is it a flawed idea or story from the very beginning that you have to sort of help them uh, work through? Um, what is it basically that some writers have a harder time with than others getting to that next level, their work to that next level, I should say. I find that a lot of writers, and it's usually writers that won't go on to have those careers that Ian was talking about, will settle for good enough. Hmm. How, how many times I've heard, oh, I think it's good enough, I'm going to get it out. Don't get me wrong, writers always question the quality of their work, so I'm not looking at it and saying, well, if you don't think your work is brilliant, it shouldn't go out there. Most writers will never have that moment of like, it's, it's brilliant. It's amazing. Right. In fact, I work with exactly three writers in all my years who always think the work is amazing. They're all, all working writers. They're super talented, but they're the only ones that have that magic potion. Right. And if I could sell it, I would be a millionaire. Um, 
What is the but, old saying that uh, when is a TV show ready to go into production? Uh, when you have to start shooting? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Most writers will fight. The writers that succeed, in my experience, will fight for greatness on the page. And, and it sounds hokey, but as much as they can to make the work really stand out as opposed to settle for like, eh, I think it's good enough. I'm going to go see what it does. Ultimately, they will question certain things about the work forever, but they'll look and see how it lands, right? How it lands with people, whether people start moving the work for the writer, right? Without the writer asking for favors. So somebody, an assistant will pass it on to a boss. It's going to move up within a department without the writer or the writer's representation calling and probing and begging and, and pushing and whatnot. Um, you know, so for me, a, a lot of it is the settling for good, not great. And when you talk to people in the industry, when you talk to managers, development execs, and agents, they will tell you there's a whole lot of good, there's very little great. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, that's that level that you have to push yourself to, as uncomfortable as it is, um, in order to get there. Now, for me, one of the big stumbling blocks is trying to put, to chase trends in the in the industry. You'll never win with that. Like it's it's never going to get you there. By the time you're hearing about the trend, it's already passed. And even if you're hearing about it right in the moment, it'll take you six months fast to like if you're going really really fast to generate something great. So that trend will have passed. The balance is to be true to your voice and your vision and still find the most kind of industry friendly version of that. So it's holding on to voice and vision and not doing the like, I'll be whatever you want thing, um, but still pushing the work for forward and understanding the most marketable or, or market friendly version of your own work. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, we're going to get to audience questions in just a minute. I've got a couple more questions for you guys before we sort of open it up to the uh, chat which I'll relay questions to everyone. Um, Ian and Andrew, this is for both of you guys. We'll start with Andrew. Um, now that you are a working professional, what is your process now in terms of your getting your material ready to the point where you feel comfortable sending it to your reps or sending it out? Um, do you send it to your colleagues first, like other writer friends? Do you have a writing group? Uh, because... or. Or is do you have a good enough relationship with your rep to just send a first draft? Um, obviously, when you're working on something and you're you're sending them pages as you go because it's something that you're in active development or in whatever is a little different. But when you're writing something on spec, where do you take it to get that feedback, uh, Andrew? Um, Pre-pandemic, I would just sit in a coffee shop and casually turn my screen towards someone that looked important. And <laughs> Um, that worked zero percent of the time though so um i have a couple of people that i've worked with who i have i have one friend who is a showrunner and she's always willing to write. um she gives really really fantastic notes so i i send stuff to her every time just because i feel like she understands me as a writer we worked on uh, a show together um, and we're good friends. So um, I send it to her and then um, I will use, I usually pick like three people mm -hmm. to send stuff out to at first. Um, uh, then I'll send it to someone who's, you know, not, may, may, may not even be in the industry, but knows how to read a script. I have a couple of friends like that who are like, they majored in film and TV in college and that's not what they're working in now. 
but they they watch a lot of TV, they watch a lot of movies, just to get kind of a different perspective. It's nice to kind of get someone who's not so directly involved, just to kind of see just on a general basis, like is is the material working. Um, and then, yeah, just one other person. I try to be very, very um, careful about, you know, asking for favors and having people read things too much. And that's certainly, you don't want to abuse those relationships. And so uh, I I really, really make sure that everything is as buttoned up as I can possibly get it. I'm really big on, uh, you know, proofreading everything. I know that typos happen and we all miss them. Um, it drives me insane when I find a typo in work that I've sent out to someone. I'm like, no, read this draft instead. Uh, but, um, you know, if somebody is going to take the time to read, you know, an hour pilot and digest it and give me notes and thoughtful feedback, I want to make sure that I've, I'm honoring their time by having put in as much effort and time as I can to make sure that they're reading something that's as polished as possible. And a friend of mine just sent me uh, a pilot of hers last week. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about this. I thought it was really interesting. She sent me the script and it starts with a very, very specific song. That's not, it's not like, don't stop believing that everybody knows it's, it's something. So she, she included in her email, a link to the song on YouTube. Hmm. And she also included a PDF that was about three pages of just photos. There was no writing. Um, it was a 1970s kind of mob story set in Rhode Island where her family was from. And she just said, listen to the song, here's some photos. And it, it really, really helped me to kind of get a better grasp of what the pilot was. So that's something I might try out in the future just to see, cause she was kind of giving me a little bit of an experience, not just a script. Um, and it was an extra, you know, three minutes of my time. Uh, and it really helped me to see where she was coming from. So right. a um, little bit of an aside, but yeah, that's kind of my, my process anyway. Um, before Ian answers, I want to ask Lee something as a former development exec, like as a reader, as a former story analyst at a production company and at an agency, I don't know if I would have listened to a song and or seen the pictures if you had sent it. Maybe I would have. I'm not 100% sure uh, if I wasn't familiar with it. Uh, Lee, as a former development exec, is, if you got a script and you got a video and, and some pictures with it, would you have taken the time to watch and or listen to it and, and, and looked at those photos and all that stuff? In all honesty, for me, it would depend on the writer. If it's sure. a writer that I know and whose work I'm excited about, sure. then I would take the time. I think there's also a scenario where if I'm reading five pages and it's really great, That's I true. might then stop and go back and say, okay, you know what? Let's, the writer's earned my extra three or five or whatever it is. And then I would play it. If it's somebody that I don't know and the script is not enticing me to do that, then I, I probably wouldn't do it because, as you know, we work in an industry where everybody is chronically stretched thin, right? right? We are always out of time. So even those three or five minutes, if you don't know the writer and the script is not enticing you, um, you're just not going to do it because as a development exec, you're going to look at it and say, okay, is it on the page? Is it not on the page? If it's not on the page, I don't care. Right. Um, so, yeah. so it depends. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I mean, I like the idea. I just, I'm trying to think of how to get people to actually watch it and, and, and look at the pictures and, and, and listen to the music. But I guess, yeah, if your script wows them in the first five pages, maybe you can get that. Cause I, I agree with Lee. I would do the same. Um, okay. So Ian, uh, 
Now you, what do you do in terms of when you have a, a first draft of a new script? Uh, what do you do with it? Well, my my whole process just from from moment one is is super collaborative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have terrible ADD. I am very good at getting lost in the woods. Uh, I once early in my career, I, I I was trying to adapt the Count of Monte Cristo, and I turned I. I wrote a 180 page first draft that wasn't even done yet. And wow. finally called my, uh, my producer on it, uh, John Zazirny, but this is back before he became a manager. And I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm not even to the third act yet. And I'm on page 182. What do I do here? So he sat down with me once a week, every week, I would just, you know, write 10 pages, turn them in, we'd workshop those, write another 10 workshop. I'm like totally hands-on. Uh, it was like script boot camp. Um, uh, and we wound up throwing out 160 of the 180 pages. We, we kept first 20 uh, and then rebuilt the script from there. Uh, but it, it wound up totally paying off because, you know, we, we sold it to Warner Brothers. It was the first script I, I ever got on the blacklist. Uh, and that became the bedrock for my entire creative process. Uh, you know, basically what, what I do is uh, if I'm coming up with an idea for something or if somebody pitches me an idea uh i'll uh i'll reach out to my manager and you know we'll bat ideas around about it and just do all, all we can to vet the core concept be like okay is, is this something that we can sell is this something we can get an actor in? is this something that's going to excite a director is this something that i'm going to you know that fits within my wheelhouse that i'm going to be able to do well um and then uh you know once we just vetted everything we can vet with the idea I sit down and I write the first 30 pages, turn those in for notes from, from my manager, write the next 30, turn those in for notes. So by the time I've written the first draft, it's kind of like I've written four drafts. Hmm. And so, but that's, you know, that, that's just the, you know, the, the first thing that we've got. So once we've got that draft done, uh, we have this thing called the circle of trust where we will send out the script to a handful of other Bellevue clients to get their notes on it. And so like, you know, five to 10 other clients will read this thing, we'll put their notes together in a gigantic document and we'll go through them line by line to see, you know, what are the patterns here? What are people responding well to? What are people not responding well to? What's what's confusing? What needs clarification? Uh, you know, because when you've got a group that size, you start to notice things happening over and over again. So uh, we, we go through, we, we address all the things that we, we feel like will make the script stronger. Uh, and once we've got that circle of dra- uh, circle of trust draft done, I'll read the whole thing aloud to myself and look for look for typos. You know, send it to uh, uh, somebody at Bellevue to do one more typo pass on it, and then it goes off to the agents. Uh, so you know, each each script that I write, we might do you know three or four drafts total before it, it before the agency sees it because once it's in the hands of UTA. They only have one button, and that button is go. Like, like my, my agent doesn't give notes. I don't even know if my agent knows how to read. Like, when I, when I send him scripts, he sends me back one-word responses. And I can usually, like, guess what it's going to be. If I send him a horror script, he's going to write back and say, spooky. Or if I send him an action script, he's going to be like, fun. So <laughs> given that, you know, once, the, once UTA has it, you know, you're just letting the dog off the chain. You have to make sure that whatever you're giving them is the best possible thing that you can give them that you, you, you personally don't know how to make it any better. Uh, because you know, once it's in their hands, then 
you know, <laughs> it's out of your control. Mm-hmm. I have to add on to what Ian just said, because I can't tell you how many times I, I would have clients call me in a panic because they send something to their agent that they were hoping to get notes on or just get, you know, get a general feel for what the agent thinks. And before they know, they're like, oh, the agent called and it went out to 10 places. And they're like, I haven't even proofed the damn thing. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't send anything to your agent that you wouldn't be happy with the town seeing. Like, exactly. unless you have like that one unicorn agent who gives you notes, uh, get get your notes elsewhere. <laughs> I'll echo what Ian said as well about reading it out loud. I read everything out loud before it goes out because it's amazing how you can, I grew up as an actor. That was sort of my first thing. And so um, I feel like I can get a decent grasp on the material uh, as I'm writing it. And it's amazing how sometimes you read something out loud, you go, that's a horrendous sentence i no one would ever say that and you don't see it when it's written but when right. you hear it you're like yeah. i gotta i gotta use that yeah there's there's things that look amazing on the page but then when you make an actual human being say them you, you realize what just uh what a horrible gauntlet you're laying down for them like i, I when i when i was working on on training day the the day we were shooting my episode the first day of, of production on that uh, Bill Paxton, who's our star, comes up to me and he's like, look at this line here. <laughs> I, the line involved a word that no human being has ever said. The word was obituarist. Somebody who writes obituary. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he's like, you cannot possibly expect me to say this. And like, you know, so we came up with some like alts for it and he somehow wound up pulling off the original line, but he was very good at letting you know when you were trying to, when, when you were trying to stuff words that didn't fit in his mouth. Mm -hmm. Like the, the phrase he would use was, why don't you just put a horse cock in my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> he was a, he was a colorful character. Um, and I can, uh, so do you, actually just read it out loud <clears throat> excuse me or do you like videotape it i know like peyton manning for the the draft combine before he was drafted would videotape himself interviewing himself so that he could see because they all go through interviews team interviews and they meet with and he wanted to present the best image he wanted to know what answers he stumbled on so in a similar way do you record yourself so that you can look back on it and see or do you just like listen to it while you're reading it out loud and then pick up from that I mean, sometimes when I pitch something, I'll leave like a little recording device inside my backpack in the conference room and then oh. kind of can forget it so that I can just listen to what they're saying afterwards when I come back for it. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea. That's, uh, <laughs> that was a Jerry Lewis move. He was always terrified what people were saying about him behind his back. So he'd push it like that. But no, uh, I, I've never, I've never videotaped myself um, reading a script or, uh, I, I've, I've done some recorded practice sessions when I'm doing pitches, especially Zoom pitches, and I found that to be really helpful. Um, but when it comes to just, you know, proofreading or vetting or making sure the dialogue works, that's just me pacing on back and forth in my room, reading the script off of paper. Mm -hmm. And I, I think actually doing it off of paper makes a difference as well. Your, your eye, for some reason, handles the read differently when you've got a piece of paper in your hand as opposed to a scrolling screen. Right. Well, because I think you can also, if you if there's some movement involved, it's like not that you're like literally acting it out, but if you can sort of emote a little bit and kind of walk around versus just sitting in a chair, if it's some big impassioned speech where somebody's supposed to be standing up and flailing their arms, like for me that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. 
And as a, a former reader at a production company, I have to say what Lee said about the age, or who said it? Was it Ian? Or no, I think Lee said about just you sent a draft to your agent to get feedback or whatever, and they just sent it out. I had gotten drafts, scripts from agents submitted to a production company because I was that reader that said first draft right on the front page. And I was like, this is going to be bad. <laughs> like, why would you send a first? And it was on the cover. It said first draft. I'm like, and this came from an agent. I was like, what? Okay. Maybe that was the name of the script. It was not. <laughs> there was a title of the script. <laughs> and it was not the author's name either. So, um, yeah, so be careful with that. Um, we're going to open up to Q&A just one second. I have one more question for Lee. Um, and it's one I think is relevant for all emerging writers, how do emerging writers know that their work is ready to be shown? You know, so it's strong enough to elicit positive attention. Like, how do they know? How, when they look at their script, is this one ready to go out? So I do think it's about vetting it, about getting enough reads from enough people to get a sense of whether or not it's landing. It's not that everybody's gonna love your work because that's never gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And if you aim for that bar, you're gonna lose. Uh, but ultimately, if you just get enough people that you respect, who know what they're talking about, who understand cinematic format or understand TV writing, understand what goes into a script, what makes a great script, um, and can say, like, I get it, I see it, I think it totally works, they can come back and say, this is not my thing, mm -hmm. and good luck to you with it. But as long as they say, okay, I'm, I see what you're seeing here, and it's landing, and the comments that you're getting are not incredibly surprising in terms of you can live with them because they're comments that are made to conscious choices in the script whether it resonates with somebody or not is a different thing and listen it's it's a very nuanced thing when you when you say okay i think i got enough reads i think enough people that i trust read it and said okay i think it's i think there's something here i think it's really good i think this is something that should get out there will be enough of those people where you go, okay, there'll be those negative Nellies, but at the end of the day, I feel good about it because enough people have received it the way that I intended. And it is nuanced. It's every writer gets to that moment independently. And I think it's, a, it's different on every script, mm -hmm. um, but you have to, you have to, to really make sure that you have that sign off because you're going to need, like we said earlier, a ton more, um, you know, to get from, the reader to the manager, the reader to the agent, the assistant to the producer, those people, somebody's going to have to read it and go, it's great. I love it. Right. And if you can't get the, it's great. I love it on your own from people that know you, it's going to be that much harder with people who don't know you and have a million other scripts to read. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So everyone in the chat, if you have a question for any of our guests, Andrew, Ian, or Lee, please leave it. And while the questions start coming in, I'm going to say to each of you guys, what is the first script that you read um, that blew you away? That just a script that you read and thought, okay, this is what my writing needs to be at, or this is the level of writing that, that I should aspire to as a writer. Or in, in Lee's case, like this is the level you should be aiming for, um, you know, to be considered professional. Um, Andrew? I know Lee's going to be uh, in agreement with me on this because I creeped on her website a little bit before we did this. The pilot of Breaking Bad is one of the best episodes of TV uh, for me. Amen. Yeah, I'm I'm still so 
I don't know how many times, and I'm still shocked that they were able to fit as much story into a single hour of TV. If you, when you think about where it starts and where the characters are versus the end of that pilot, it's phenomenal. So that, I mean, that may not be the first script that I read where I thought this is really, really amazing, but that's the one that really stands out to me is I, I aspire to uh, create a world uh, that, that feels like that. Mm -hmm. Ian? You know, the, it, it was one of the first scripts I ever read. Um, when I was uh, 12 years old, I tried to go see Train Spotting in the theaters and they would not sell me a ticket because I was 12. <laughs> uh, so I, I went next door to Barnes and Noble and found a copy of the script in, in their, their movie section and just read the first page in, in the store and, and just immediately bought it after that. Like the, the, the first page is just the, the foot chase through, through that Scottish city with that incredible voiceover monologue, the, the, the choose life monologue mm. that you, McGregor delivers. And uh, I, I remember just being so blown away by the, that opening page and by that whole script in general that, uh, you know, it, it inspired me to write my first feature that year. Like I, I, I wrote a, a 12 year old from Utah who has never seen drugs version of transpotting hmm. uh, <laughs> on a Macintosh <laughs> in Microsoft Word. <laughs> nice. Um, Lee, uh, other than Breaking Bad? Other than Breaking Bad, which totally 100%. Um, you know, I came up in the in the 90s, um, and I remember back in the day, the script for Reservoir Dogs was making rounds. And what was amazing about it was the voice of each character and how well you knew them from the moment that each one showed up on, you know, the virtual stage, if you will. Um, that was one of those experiences that really were profound for me. Um, you know, but honestly... I've been around for so long <laughs> that you were, I mean, there was a script called Albino Alligator. There was a brilliant script in a terrible movie that Kevin Spacey directed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the script was really good. Um, the movie, not so much. But, I mean, there's so much great work out there. And I think, I think it's, you know, the challenge is we all read so much, right? Because you have to know what's happening in the industry. You have to, if you're a writer coming up, you want to read the blacklist, right? You want to read those scripts and see what are the voices that are resonating. And there's just really great work out there. Some of which, you know, any individual can hate because again, subjectivity, really important. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Breaking Bad script is masterful. And and, and I, to add to what you were saying, it's, it's not only what they did with plot, it's how much they managed to move character along with the plot without compromising character, mm -hmm. right? And they managed to do so much in it that... I could read that one for fun daily. Right. <laughs> um, okay, computer 0101 agrees with you, uh, Ian. That's an awesome scene, I guess, in train spotting. Um, David Wales has a question for the panel. So we'll start off uh, with Andrew and Ian and then uh, Lee. Um, are there broad or really specific strategies to making a script more marketable without losing voice and vision? Sorry, can, can you say that one more time? Yeah, it says, are there broad or really specific strategies to making a script more marketable without losing voice 
and vision, I guess, of the author. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Andrew thoughts? I I personally don't think about, I write what I want to watch. So I'm, you know, I think it goes back to what was being said earlier about trying to follow trends and what's going on. If you were like watching, you know, the walking dead and going, Oh man, I really want to write a zombie show. By the time it comes out, there's already nine other zombie shows that have been released and it's sort of, so I, yeah, I, the, I just, I kind of find a series that I like or a tone of a show that's on that I enjoy. Like I was, when I was watching Fargo, I thought I'd love to do something that kind of feels like that sort of quirky, but dark sensibility. And so I wrote a script that was sort of in that vein. I, but I wasn't thinking about marketability. I was just thinking about what to watch. Mm-hmm. So um, keep the questions coming. Um, but Ian, so now you are there. So the question again is, are there broad or really specific strategies to making a script more marketable without again, losing the voice and, and uh, vision of the uh, writer? You know, in a way, I think this ties into what what Lee was talking about earlier. Um, I, I think that uh, whether or not a script is marketable really comes down to it, its core concept. Uh, you you can have a script that you know has a core concept that's not super marketable, but you've executed it so well that people are still excited about making it. Uh, like you know, okay, if you take something like baby driver for example like with with baby driver you've got a story about a uh this young man who is a uh bank robbing getaway driver who is this exceptional man behind the wheel because he listens to music and you know i'm like you know who else listens to music when they drive fucking everybody like (laughs) like this, this movie could be about my dad like outrunning the cops while listening to jimmy buffett in his ford explorer like (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those concepts that because it's executed so well, because Edgar Wright's a, a, an absolute genius, um, the the level of execution makes it marketable. Uh, you know, you've, you've got this, you've got this incredible cast, you got this incredible director, that core concept by itself has to be executed at that level in, in order to become marketable. Uh, whereas if you take something like, I don't know, the, the concept for like A Quiet Place, you automatically can describe what that movie is in one sentence. You can picture the trailer, you can picture the poster, you can uh, you, you can think of what the tagline for that would be. Uh, it's the kind of story premise that you tell you tell people it in one sentence, and they have to know more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you know whether or not your your script is marketable really is something that you decide on day one when you pick what concept you're going to write. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my, my strategy would be if, if you want to write something that is market friendly, then vet the hell out of your concepts until you land on the one that makes people go, oh, my God, I have to go see that. Uh, and, you know, hopefully that's something that interfaces with with your voice and vision. Uh, you know, like like Andrew was saying, uh, you write what you want to go see. And if you happen to be passionate about concepts that are also marketable then that makes your job a lot easier sure it's interesting that you brought up baby driver because when i was thinking about what we were talking about today it reminded me of going to a screening of that at the uh at the writers guild and edgar talked afterwards about the fact that he created this thing i think he was saying that he created or maybe somebody he knew created it so when he sent the script out to people because it was so reliant on music and specific pieces of music 
that when it went to the cast, there there was a link in the script to when they would get to a scene, they could like tap on it yeah. and that piece of the song would start playing while they were reading it, which was absolutely brilliant. Mm. <laughs> right, but th that's that's something that, that Edgar Wright could do. Like, like we were talking earlier about whether or not, you know, people should right. send out music suggestions or, you know, pictures photos along along with their scripts and i would say if, if you're a writer who's first starting out you're first breaking in most likely the answer to that is no i, I would i would save those tricks for once you're absolutely once you're actually established because uh if so many people have been burned by uh getting a rookie script that you know where the writer was like hey no i just need to put you in my headspace and so i'm going to send you this spotify playlist that goes along with the script like it, it's something that you can trust, like a you know an A-level filmmaker with, like like Edgar Wright. But if it's coming from someone you've never heard of, it's it's sort of an automatic red flag for me. Right. Um, Lee, marketability. In, in... Um, I'm actually going to build on what what the guy said. I totally agree with you. Have to to write the thing you want to watch. You have to be passionate about it. You can't compromise that. A writer of mine is taking a pitch out next week and when when the writers are developing the contents of working TV writer, um, I got a lot of, here's what I did and I still think I'm the only person who will ever wanna watch this, right? I can't tell you how many times I got, you know, but I think the show's only for me. Hmm. Fast forward two months later, pitches are being said, I think there's 12 pitches right now on the books. So clearly other people wanna see it as well, but it, but it starts with this idea of, you have to write the thing that you're passionate about because writing is hard because there's rejection that's involved in everything because you know it's nothing is a walk in the park in this industry from a place of passion and voice and vision because otherwise why bother i mean that's what brings you back to the computer that's what gets you fighting the fight for it if you're just doing something for you know whether you're chasing the trends or you think that the industry will respond to x um i, I think it's a losing battle so i do think that it's First of all, it's about really honing in on what it is that you want to do, what you want to say, and then considering, um, you know, kind of what is the most accessible way to tell that story, but it still has to be the story that you are passionate to tell. Right. Well, I've also heard people say like, oh, Netflix is doing this kind of thing right now. Let's write the thing that Netflix wants and really hone in on that. And it's like, okay, great. You say you get a pitch at netflix and they pass that's it i mean that's kind of a broad example but it's like if you are just really trying to hone in on one specific thing you're putting all your eggs into that basket and it most likely doesn't work out then that's that's your shot gone so right yeah yeah, yeah and then you're stuck with with a script that you know only works in this one narrow target like you know the, the example that I, I always use is like i I missed the found footage boat by about a month and a half, two months. And <laughs> I've got, you know, <laughs> try to find me somebody who's excited about reading a found footage script in 2021. Like <laughs> just tumbleweeds and crickets around you. It's, it's, a, it's, it's one of those things where because I chased the trend and I missed it, there's, there's the price to be paid for that. Right. Now it's a found, found footage script. Well, it could get it rebooted, so who knows? Maybe it'll come back around like That's bell bottoms. Or I don't know. Um, so Michael Wolf asked, should a beginning screenwriter worry about the scope, potential budget of the story they are trying to tell? I'm going to throw that one at Ian, since you are the uh, writer of big budget sci-fi action thrillers. 
especially one coming out in September of 2021, starring Mark Wahlberg, directed by the uh, incomparable Antoine Fuqua called Infinite from Paramount. Uh, go ahead, uh, <laughs> uh, Ian. I, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we, we've, we've all said this already, but like, you know, step one is write the thing that you're most passionate about, write the thing you're most excited about. Because if you're writing on spec, you're writing for free, the only thing that's going to get you across the finish line is is that passion. Um, so that's that's the first thing to think about. Everything else is secondary. And yeah, it, it is smart to to think about what the parameters you're, you're playing in are. Uh, because if you write something like, okay, like I, I wrote Infinite on spec, and I was writing a you know easily hundred hundred fifty million dollar movie that could only get made at five places in the world, uh, and I I knew that going into it, but I, I had enough faith in the concept, and I, I'd seen other types of movies like this get made at that scale that I knew that there was a hunger for movies like this. I wrote it specifically to to play in in that huge blockbuster space, um, but you know other th other things that I've written. I am going for a, a much more specific budget target saying like, okay, like, you know, no, nobody's going to spend a hundred million dollars on this type of movie, but they will spend 20 on a movie like this. They will spend 10, they will spend 40. Um, so by educating yourself about what the different types of budget levels that studios or indie financiers will make movies at and what type of movies they'll, they'll, they'll give that type of money to, uh, you are making your job easier as as the script goes out. Like like for example, uh, if you have a uh, if you have uh, a horror movie starring teenagers uh, that costs forty million dollars, that's going to be a harder sell than a horror movie starring teenagers that costs five million dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so like it, it, uh, it, it does set you up for success better if you are able to to educate yourself on what types of movies get made for what budget levels, so you don't automatically scare people off by being like, "Hey, here's a here's a hundred million dollar hard R comedy." Like, yeah, <laughs> there's a reason you don't see a lot of those. Right. Um, speaking of big budget stuff, isn't it much? more difficult to get big budget stuff that is not attached to an IP made these days? Yeah, it's damn near impossible. I mean, like, like, uh, you know, even, even my movies, you know, it's, it's not originally, it's, it's based on a book. It's just a self-published book. So it's, it's not a piece of name brand IP, but sure. most studios are, are saving their really big budgets for really recognizable properties. Like the, the you know with for the studios the the only guarantee they have for somebody for an audience spending money on something is if they've spent money on it before. That's the closest thing they they have to like a an automatic yes. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, give them something that they're already aware of, like Marvel, like Star Wars, like DC, you know, like you know this board game or that toy or that that video game, uh, they're more likely to. To, to save their their larger budgets for that more recognizable I, IP. Uh, so like if, if you've got a you know a hundred million dollar original sci-fi spec or action spec, know going into it that you were trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Right. Um, Emily 
Eshragi, uh, hopefully I pronounced your name right. Emily asked, what aspects of character do you find are most important to focus on? Uh, personality, worldview, goals, motivation, fears, uh, misbeliefs, etc. Uh, Lee, when you're working with your writers, what aspects of character do you find are most important for them to focus on? That's a big question. Um, listen, I, it's, it's not a helpful answer, but a character has to be a well-rounded and complete character for it to become one that we can invest in. Um, so it has to embody all of that, right? We focus on character wound. We focus on motivations. We focus on goals. We focus on all of those things. But in order to feed all of those things, the character has to be well-rounded and complete. Um, so I don't think, I actually think that saying there's like the one thing is misleading because that, that's the definition of, of one dimensional. Yeah. Um, we need those well-rounded dimensional characters that bake in all of that. So, you know, they're writers, and I don't know if you guys do this, but the writers that will do extensive character bios or character short, short stories before they get into pages or whatever it is to really get to know their characters. But the point is to get those characters to be for the writer and then hopefully for the reader, living, breathing personalities. Mm -hmm. You also hear uh, a lot in writers' rooms and just in story conversations in general, the phrase that everybody is the hero of their own story. Oh, right. So, you know, even when you're writing the villain, for whatever reason, they're doing the right thing for whatever reason it is. So um, that's something that I'm always thinking about in crafting characters is why are they doing the thing that they're doing and why do they believe that that's the right thing to do? A good point. Yeah, I'm a big believer that, you know, the, the driver of any piece that has any shred of character is who's the protagonist, what do they want, what's getting in their way, and the antagonist has to have the same thing or it's just not going to work, right? We, we need to have these characters grounded in very real wants and stakes that feed into the character that was created on the page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like, like it, it's, it's, I think it's impossible to, to boil it down to, to one thing that is the most important because... I uh, character just being what it is, is holistic. Like uh, it doesn't, it's not just about worldview or goal or voice or behavior. They're, they're all equally important parts of the, of this, the same thing. Um, I, I, I will, I will say that like uh, people tend to put down scripts if the dialogue sucks and actors, you know, <laughs> will not go for roles if they're being made to embarrass themselves with bad dialogue. So it's, you know, it's, that's definitely something important to focus on, but that kind of the, the good dialogue will, will automatically spring out of well-formed characters. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the thing that, that I, I try to keep in mind when I'm, I'm crafting the people in my movies is I think about both my hero and my villain. And I do this exercise with myself where I say like, okay, I'm gonna describe my villain, but only talk about the positive attributes of this character. So like if, if, uh, if we're talking about somebody like Hannibal Lecter, you might say like, okay, this guy is polite. He's erudite, he's extremely intelligent. He's tasteful, he's well-educated. He, uh, you know, he's a good listener. <laughs> and then you say, okay, good. Now let's describe him only using negative terms and it's like well he's a fucking psychopathic cannibal <laughs> <laughs> right. 
you do that for a hero. You, you t t say like, okay, describe Han Solo only using negative attributes. And it's like, okay, he's selfish. He's kind of a prick. He's arrogant. He, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's like thinks he's a, he's a ladies man. We, we, like there's, there's different ways that you can focus on the negative things about his character. And by creating that balance between positive and negative in both your hero and your villain, you're creating well-rounded characters. If you can only use positive words to describe your hero and only use negative words to describe your villain, then you're going to have one-dimensional people. And you're going to get one-dimensional dialogue and behavior out of that. Right. Right. No, that's good. Um, didn't they always say, who's... I've heard that, like, John Wayne Gacy, oh, he was really like he loved dogs or something like that or he's a quiet good neighbor or something like that like everybody has something about them that, <laughs> <laughs> a story about somebody who's like slaughtered a family the next door neighbor is always like they were always so polite right mm -hmm. right they bring in my trash cans for me and like <laughs> no coming right right um rv army asked what's the first thing you do when you Let's, let me start again. What's the first thing you do when you think you have a good idea? Do you brainstorm? Do you look for a theme? Come up with uh, characters that fit that idea. Um, Andrew, what's the first thing you do when you find a good idea? Um, a lot of what I write is based on, even if it's just a tiny nugget of something true that I actually read, either it's a crime that happened or you know, it's an interesting person or whatever it is. So then I, I start to do a lot of research and uh, try and figure out what the world looks like because I'm not going to make a documentary about this subject. I'm writing a fictional scripted, you know, piece on it. Um, so I'm thinking about do television. So I'm also thinking about, does is this an idea that actually would work in television or is it more better suited to be a feature or would it be a mini series, which is a whole other thing to, to deal with. But um, yeah, just trying to figure out like what the, what the world is, where do these people live and who are the people who are the characters that populate that, that story. Um, and I, I'm such a big researcher. So I just, I go down rabbit holes and I wrote a, a script that I won't go into specifics on, but it was about making a particular condiment like that you would put on food. And um, I spent days researching. I watched videos of how this was made and how people went into different factories and did it and where it came from, like all kinds of stuff. Um, so that's kind of my first first thing. And if I keep doing that research and I think about the different people that could be in there, if that, then I know it's something that I want to pursue further. Mm -hmm. Um. Let's see here. Uh, the next question is from Christian uh, Moldes. Hopefully I pronounced your name right, Christian. Um, says, as the old adage goes, the last draft of the script is the first draft of the movie. Or no, first cut of the movie, excuse me. In your experience, how much has a screenplay you've written changed during filming? Uh, well, Ian... You're, uh, you, haven't, you, haven't, you haven't seen Infinite yet, but perhaps uh, Training Day or... or uh, I mean, uh, God, I, I, I knew Christian back uh, when I was getting my first movies made, so he's he's seen me uh, be both very happy oh, with the result and very unhappy with the result. Uh, so, hi, Christian. Um, I, uh, I I think, like, every everything that I've written that's been made has 
fundamentally been a, a, a different st- project in its final cut than it, than it was in my final draft of the script, it, except for my episode of Training Day, because with that, the you know the writer has enough power that the director just shoots the script. You don't you don't get a lot of notes from the director on a TV show. Um, so uh, everything else uh, always went through a lot of different evolutions. Um, and so like when I've, you know, when I've seen this work in a positive way, it's where the director has located some truth about the characters that I hadn't on the page and has, you know, revealed more layers in them through performance and through how they, they direct them. Um, or somebody who's able to, like a director who's able to wring suspense or tension out of a scene in ways that I hadn't thought of when I was writing it. That, that's, that's when it goes right. When, when it goes wrong, uh, you wind up in a scenario where you have a director who thinks they're a writer or who fundamentally misunderstands your script. Uh, like I, I, had a, I had a movie made where what I wrote was a 90-page buddy comedy and what got made was a two-hour dark indie drama um, just because the, the director didn't understand the tone I was going for. Uh, or, you know, there, there was another one where uh 48 hours before production the director decided that he was now a comedy writer even though he'd never written anything before and rewrote all the jokes of the script and just completely ruined this thing so uh you like it can swing both ways you can discover elements about your your story that weren't clear to you when you're writing it that, that suddenly take on this beautiful new life on screen or you know you you can watch your baby die up there Right. Um, Christian had a follow-up, uh, and I'm going to throw it to Andrew to see if he has input on this. Um, do you have any anecdotes of a change during production that may, that you feel made your script better or worse on any of your episodes um, that were shot or any changes made during production that you felt made your script better or worse? I mean, as Ian said, in TV, it's really it's a lot of times you just don't have the time to make a lot of changes. You're moving really quickly. And, you know, it's not as though it's a standalone piece. There's an episode that came before and there's an episode that comes after. So you can do little things within the episode. I think as far as script changes in television, I haven't experienced anything big with that, but I did do, um, I directed, uh, directed a short film uh, a couple of years ago, just because I wanted to have that experience and, of, of putting that all together and in shooting everything went according to plan, but in post we ended up cutting actually. Um, and it wasn't that we cut entire scenes. It was just that there were pieces where it was dragging and it, we had an Emmy winning editor who was very good about finding those moments where he said, this doesn't push anything forward. Um, we can lose it and it trims time. So it, the first cut came in at 13 minutes and the final cut was 11 minutes, which maybe doesn't seem like a huge chunk, but when it's only that long, that was substantial. Um, so that, yeah, that made a difference. And it was something where on the page, I was like, Oh, I really like the flow of this dialogue and how it works. And then once all the elements came together, we thought we can, we can lose some of this and, and tighten it up. And it, it made it much, much stronger. Um, 
David Wales says, those were awesome answers to my question about marketability. So helpful. That makes me feel so much better about my output. Well, that's great, Dave. Um, so good job, panel. Good job, guys. Um, let's see. What else? Okay. Um, uh, uh, Banter English. Uh, his name is Devin. Oh, ignore my account name. Sorry about that, Devin. So Devin asked, uh, what counts as interesting IP? Uh, you mentioned a self-published book. Do you need to have certain sales numbers? Well, that was a self-published book, right, Ian? So I guess the sales oh, yeah. numbers were pretty low on that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how many copies of the the book uh, the the author had sold. It wasn't, you know, any, anything that allowed him to quit his day job. Um, but uh, because it was a existing piece of material, it still opened doors that just an original script wouldn't. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's an article, a short story, a self-published novel, uh, you know, it, like a, a uh, you know, like something that you saw on Reddit, just having something that already exists out in the world is just the first step of making an executive or a producer feel more confident that they can get this made. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, there's obviously pieces of IP that, you know, you're, you're never going to get your hands on. Uh, and and the, the studios have, you know, scooped up all of the, the big ones that we've heard of. But there's a whole wealth of uh, of untapped resources out there. It's just a question of finding them. Right. Um, Brian Moran asked, let's see, how does a writer get through periods of doubt that they can ever achieve pro level? Um, what struggle in confidence have you experienced in your own careers? Well, first, I'm going to throw it to Lee and say, when you work with writers who may have that sort of doubt that they can reach that pro level. Uh, what do you tell them? Welcome to writing. It's I work with, with, uh, you know, an A-list studio writer who says that if you're not having enough self-doubt to quit writing at least once a week, you're doing something wrong. Um, I think it's about accepting and, you know, embracing that self-doubt as best as you can. And, and, recognize it as kind of a neurotic drive rather than a substantive one. Um, but I think every writer questions themselves and the quality of their writing. The thing is to have a support group, to have people that you can go to for honest feedback, to kind of separate yourself from that neurotic worry that, you know, you'll really never be that good, but rather have people that you trust that will be able to kind of talk you through it or help you through it, listen to it, and just accept it as part of the process. Because like I said, I, I work with three writers. I've worked with thousands of writers at this point. I work with three writers in all my years who are always like, the work is amazing. The work is so good. And it's not bravado for the record. Like they say it and they mean it. And they'll they'll say things like, you know, the, the level of the writing right now, it's never been this good. Like, this is amazing. What I'm generating right now, I'm at the top of my game. And they genuinely mean that. And I envy that so much. Most writers feel uncertain of their own quality, what they can generate, if not straight out imposter syndrome. So I think it's just learn to live with it because it's here to stay. Yeah, I have a friend who I worked on a show with who has been a showrunner. Uh, he won an Emmy for uh, his work on a major, major streaming show. He's got an overall deal. And I saw him at a Writers Guild event maybe two years ago that was about pitching. And I just said, what are, you, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm just, I'm not feeling any of the stuff I'm putting together. 
right now and I just need some help and guidance. And it was like, it, yeah, so it definitely bears repeating. It never goes away. It doesn't matter what. I can't tell you how many times I'll have a writer get off a job and start pitching on a new thing or, you know, get into a new writer's room and I will hear something to the tune of maybe this is where, where they found it, find out that I can't really write. Hmm. Maybe this is when it will be revealed that all of this has been one crazy mistake. Mm-hmm. I think it's so natural and I, writing is so personal and so subjective. I, you know, people at the highest level go through it. So nobody's. Yeah. So I get Oh, okay. Uh, so you wanted to ask, yeah, what struggles and confidence uh, have you experienced in your own career, Andrew or Ian? What was the question? Sorry. What struggles and confidence have you personally experienced in your own career? Oh, all the time. I mean, the majority of things that you write are never going to be seen by anybody outside of the people that you sent them to. Um, it's just the nature of the business. Uh, for me, it's it's perseverance. It's like, I don't know what else I would do. Mm. So I just keep writing because that's the thing that I know how to do. And it is the thing that I feel like I am, I'm good at. I'm by no means, uh, the greatest screenwriter ever to live. Um, I don't know who that would be, but, uh, I'm, you know, that's the thing that I, I feel I'm confident enough in doing. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's stereotypical to say, but, you know, rejection, you just have to learn to deal with rejection. A lot of the time, it's not, most of the time, it's not personal. It's just, oh, we loved it, but we don't have a space for it right now, or we have something that's too similar to this or whatever it is. So it's just learning to hear that stuff and and what it means. And I think understanding how the business works is really, really valuable. I worked in representation before I became a writer. And so it was great to see, and I worked at a, at a studio. Um, so it's great to see what's going on in those areas as well, to understand that there are a lot of different decisions that are going on. And there are a lot of reasons that mm-hmm. things don't get made. And it doesn't mean that you're not a fantastic writer. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, no matter how far your career goes, no, no, no matter how big you get, there's one inescapable fact of, of being a professional creative and that really is that your your job is to continually trick people into paying you to do silly things like doesn't matter like if, if you are a, a like a list academy award-winning writer or if, if you're just first starting out really what it comes down to is that uh so i i think that uh Every writer I know on some level has some level of, of imposter syndrome. Um, and every writer I know like wonders like, you know, is this going to be the last one? Is this going to be, you know, the time when I'm found out? Is this going to be like, the, you know, when my talent deserts me? Uh, you know, the, the entire industry is, is, is fueled by people with these, these neuroses. So if, you, if you're having those doubts about yourself, it just means that, you know, you're already in the same emotional club as everybody who's working. Uh, yeah, I, I was at a panel for like an Oscar, I guess films that have been nominated for Oscars at the Guild. And um, Steve, is it Zalian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, who He was there for The Irishman. But I mean, he wrote Schindler's List and people were asking questions about, you know, his process. And he goes, 
I don't know. I just write something and I hope it doesn't suck. And so, you know, <laughs> movies like that, if that's the response, it's like, yeah, everybody does it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, your boy Christian Moldes wrote up again. What's up, Ian? Nice tan. <laughs> and he had a question for the panel. Uh, what do you wish you knew on day one of your career that you know now? Maybe one quick thing. Anyone? Think about that. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple more questions um, we're, um, so we don't run too long here. Um, so think about that and we'll, run, we'll revisit that one. Um, Kay Wu says, what change in business practices stemming from the pandemic do you uh, see the industry keeping as we uh, head towards a, a post-COVID world? I think, uh, I think the days of driving to Santa Monica at four o'clock in the afternoon are hopefully over. Uh, now that like everybody in the world figured out how to use Zoom all at the same time, there's plenty of of, uh, of meetings that could ju- have just as easily been Zooms. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, okay. Yeah, you know, I think people don't want to see the, the big kind of changing in trends, which again, don't follow the trends, but... Like we don't want movies up about pandemics right now. We're just we're, we got a little pandemic fatigue. We are changing the way that we're working. Just like Ian said, there's a lot more that is a lot more general meetings. I think are going to stay on Zoom. Um, Andrew, I don't know how you feel about your Zoom room, but most people don't seem to love those. Um, <laughs> no, I, I haven't talked to one person who's like my Zoom room is heaven. Um, but it's like the possibility is great. It's like for if you're on script and they need you in the room, you don't have to drive to wherever to do it. You can just a hundred percent. But I think the industry is hoping to go back um, to same productivity. I mean, the industry liked how it worked, right? We liked how we generated things. So I think that once we can, that will be preserved. I don't think pitch meetings will ever be normalized on Zoom if we can help it. Thank God. <laughs> sit in a room with a person that you're you know going to buy a, a big show or movie from um and i'm sure for you guys when you're pitching you'd much rather be in a room with the execs and reading the execs and reading the room as opposed to just hoping that they still have your or you still have their attention on zoom so that's the only way ian gets his tape recorder in there so he's got right. <laughs> conversations if i'm not in the room with them right <laughs> Um, uh, although Zoom does have that record function, but yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, okay, so back to Christian's question, then we have time for just maybe one more. Um, so what do you wish you knew on day one of your career that you know now? I, uh, I wish I, um, honestly, uh, I wish I had known that there was going to be a huge paradigm shift between movies and, and TV. When I was going to school, like movies were still hot shit and TV like hadn't quite uh, become what it is now. Like you know, I graduated in 2007. So I think that was like, wait, Breaking Bad came out 2008, right? Like, like the, 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 the big shows when I, when I was in school were like, like The Shield and Lost and, and, uh, and The Sopranos. So um, the uh, like prestige TV wasn't like fully a thing yet. Everybody I knew wanted to to only write movies. Barely anybody gave a shit about television, and 
you know, jump to 2021. And now I, I feel like I'm, I'm like the last guy at the party still, you know, cranking out feature specs uh, and all of the, uh, the, the, the smart writers I know have fled off to television and, you know, are able to tell these, these wild character driven stories that studios don't seem interested in telling anymore. Uh, so I, I, I wish I'd, I'd known that there was going to be a whole shift in uh, what stories are being told where. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have something you wish you knew at the start of your career? I had one and I lost it. So I wish that I would have remembered to write things down. I think that, <laughs> that, that can be your, uh, your answer. Take notes. Yeah, take notes. Um, okay. Emily Ashragi had uh, another question. Tips for writing great subtext. Do any of you guys have tips for writing great subtext? Read a lot of David Mamet. Hmm. There you go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the uh... It's, it's, it's okay. It's one of the things I've found that's useful for, for helping bury the text is to give the, the characters an activity within the scene or some prop that they're focusing on. A great example of this is, is the, uh, the dialogue about from, from, uh, from Schitt's Creek about what type of wine he likes, mm. where he's, he's clearly talking about his, his pansexuality, but it's, it's all, it's all couched in, in terms of red versus white, uh, versus uh, Rosé. Um, so, uh, you know, having something you can put in the character's hand or having some activity that can help bury what they're actually talking about, but also inform it, that, that's, that's been helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just to wrap up the whole thing, our topic of getting their scripts pro-ready, what is one piece of advice you have for emerging writers out there to help them get to that point to where their script is ready to be read by an industry professional. Um, Andrew, one piece of advice about, um, before I really was, I mean, before I wrote my first substantial TV pilot, I probably read a thousand scripts. Mm-hmm. So because working representation, that was a huge part of it. It was reading incoming material and reading client material. So read every script you can get your hands on and you will learn just as much from reading horrendous scripts as you will from reading brilliant ones. Um, and yeah, that that helped me a ton because I got to the point where I could, at least for me, I could pinpoint the things that I liked and the things that I thought were not well executed. So yeah, read, read every script you can get and read like crazy and read them over and over again. You know, if it's something that you, you really love, read it again and see what maybe pops out to you that didn't pop out to you the first time and do the same thing with your own work. I will go back and read stuff that I wrote 10 years ago. And if I really still like it, I'm like, yeah, I'm a genius. No, but I will. It's nice to kind of see the evolution uh, in terms of me as a writer. So I think reading is just as important as as writing. Mm-hmm. Ian, I, I I absolutely agree with Andrew. Uh, the just having that baseline knowledge of having read a lot of scripts, having watched a lot of movies, having read a lot of books, and 
developing an understanding about, about what makes those things work, that's that's a crucial tool to have in, in, your, in your toolbox. Um, the, the advice that I, I would give specifically is uh, learn to cultivate joy in revising and rewriting. Hmm. Uh, for me, like I, the, the hardest part of my job is the first draft. Like I, I take very little happiness in writing a first draft. Like my, my job doesn't become fun until I'm revising. Like the, the way I, I always describe it is, is like making sculptures is fun, but making clay sucks. So if you can get yourself to the point where, where your, you know, your initial bad draft is done and, and you can start feeding it through the betterizer. Yeah, that's a note I give myself all the time. I just say betterize. <laughs> uh, but if, if you can get to a place where you're taking, where you're finding joy and fulfillment in revising and rewriting and, and making your script better, then that's going to one help elevate your project and two it's it's going to make for a longer career because most of what you're going to be doing is rewriting right um lee last bit of advice um so ultimately i'm i'm going to completely agree with both what both of the guys said because i think it's reading is key to learning how what what people are doing out there, how to become a better writer, what you respond to, what you don't respond to. I think it's one of the critical things that writers have to do. Um, and I think, you know, definitely finding finding joy in the rewrite process because it's long, um, I think is incredibly important. Um, ultimately, I think for me, it's, it's about really putting your stock in the journey rather than the destination. Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of builds on what Ian is saying because the destination is unknown and Andrew talked about you're going to write a lot of things. Not a lot of them will be seen. It's just the reality of the business. So you have to really do this because you're enjoying the writing or because it's, you're compelled to write or it's providing you with some with some sense of catharsis um, in order to stay with it. Don't do it for money. Not that there isn't money involved. Hopefully there will be you know good money involved, but it takes a really long time to get there. So if, if it's a purely financial um, arrangement, Find a better one, um, you know, but <laughs> do it because you're compelled to it and because you love the journey of writing so that even if you say, OK, let's say I write all of this and I don't I don't quote unquote make it right. I don't go pro. What what do I do then? If your answer is, well, I still write, but, you know, we'll figure out how I make a living. Then you're doing the right thing um, because you, you do have to love it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't get paid because you should, but you have to first and foremost love the writing and protect the writing in, in that sense um, so that it's always there for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Christian wanted to know what I, I wish I had known in the beginning. <laughs> First thing is, I wish I knew that there's a million easier ways to make money. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason to do this when you're first starting out is is for the love. Like, right. if you love it enough, then hopefully the money will come. But if you don't have that love there in the first place, then there's no point. Right, right. Um, cynical video threw in one quick question near the end here. So if anyone has uh, an answer, um, in today's political climate, let's okay. Um, do you feel that a lot of scripts have become more overtly message driven compared to scripts that use to carry more ambiguous, subtle themes? Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think it's a, a tough one, but do you guys obviously with politics are very difficult to put into a script and they always have been, but probably more so now than ever. But do you find that 
there are more political messages, I guess, in I actually don't find that there's more political messages. I find that, you know, inevitably, whichever side you're on, um, you know, with the rise of Trump, people start consuming a lot more news and politics. Mm -hmm. And because of that, wanting to watch less political movies um, and political TV shows, even though there are the rare birds, they're not what it was 20 years ago. What I am finding there's a lot more of is social justice messaged movies and a hunger for representation. Mm -hmm. Um, of groups of people that potentially weren't previously represented in film and television. Um, that's what I'm seeing a move towards. And I think it's a really exciting thing to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Lee. Like, I, I think that uh, I don't view it in, in terms of message movies. I, I view it as stories that are being told from viewpoints that they weren't being told from before. Like you wouldn't have a show like The Handmaid's Tale or I May Destroy You on, on the air 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, and I, I think that uh, to dismiss those stories as just as you know, just vehicles for a message is, is to miss the point. I, I think that we're, we're in a place right now where because the we've got all these different ways of consuming entertainment now, all these new types of stories are being told and there's there's no going back from that once the door's been opened right it's a scary road too because the project that i spent most of last year putting together is very much like a social justice kind of story and we have some great people involved uh helping us to tell that story but it's uh it's been a very interesting process of trying to like thread that needle because if you go too far one side or the other then you know you can alienate half the country so uh which is insane that that's where we are but um especially in entertainment you know when they are looking at you know this is a it's a business and we have to we want to get eyeballs on our content we don't want to piss off a bunch of people um so yeah it's uh it's definitely interesting but i i i fully agree that i think it's uh you know i don't i i hope that we don't see a ton of shows because i think people are pretty burnt out on that kind of stuff right now but um inherently yeah sometimes it just kind of falls in there just because that's the writer's point of view one thing that i seems to be trending i don't know intentionally or otherwise that i actually kind of like is there's so much venom and so much animosity spewed on social media that when you have a show like uh what's a ted lasso which has heart, which has compassion, which is kindness. Uh, it, it, it took, and people loved it. And I think and that, obviously it's a good show. I think there's a lot of character development. There's, it's, it's, it's funny. There's a lot of good comedy. Um, but there's, there's heart there. It's a heartfelt comedy, which instead of just jokes, there's real human emotion there. And I think that's something that, um, I'm not saying it's new, but it's something that I think people are hungering for and people have really sort of gravitated towards in their, in their viewing habits, which is great. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's as much a reaction to the, the, the political and cultural climate as it is to the fact that we had a good decade and a half of wall-to-wall antiheroes on TV. Yeah. I, I, think, I think people got antiheroed out. Like, you know, once you hit the apex of Breaking Bad, where, you know, where else is there to go after that? Sure. Uh, I, I think as, as kind of a, a response to having that be the, the norm for your, your main character for so long, people were hungry. For, they were hungry for something pure and humanistic, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting. That shows an interesting example of 
I mean, yeah, it's very much a feel good show, but it's not like everything is just wall to wall happiness the entire time. Like crummy things happen and they happen to him and you really feel for him. But I think it's the material in terms of how they put it together and how he responds to that and how the other people in that world sort of respond to him and come together. That's, that's really what makes it work. It's not as though there's no conflict whatsoever because that, that would not oh, yeah, yeah, there's a ton of conflict. It's it's structured like a drama. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you know, there's there's real loss and real heartbreak and, and it deals with with uh with really difficult things. Uh but it the show seems to absolutely love its characters. Uh, you know, even even the even the flawed ones, even the bad guys, it seems to have real affection for everybody and, and that translates to the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um We'll have all your guys' links, Twitter links, in the description below. But where can people find you, Andrew? Um, I'm in Sherman Oaks, so come on over. <laughs> um, uh, Twitter, I'm at the Real Zuber, and I'm on Instagram because I'm also a photographer. So if you like pictures of waterfalls that you would see in a dentist's office, uh, you can find me on there at Andrew Zuber. There you go, uh, Ian. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Ian Shore, and uh, if you like to bounce around to dance music, you can find me on SoundCloud at Bamboom. DJ Bamboom. Right. Uh, <laughs> and Lee. I'm on Twitter at Lee Z Jessup. Uh, you can also find me on my website, LeeJessup.com. There you go. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, we'll be doing this every Saturday uh, next week uh, at noon Pacific time. We'll be doing an episode on building your writing career with lit manager and producer John Zalzierny, who I know Ian is good buddies with and client of, uh, of Bellevue Productions. So be sure to stop by and, and chat with John. Um, so, and if you want to be kept in the loop for uh, all of our uh, upcoming episodes, you can go to scriptsandscribes.com or, and subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, so thank you all for joining us all of you in the chat and all of you here with us andrew ian lee i really appreciate it um thank you guys and we will see you next saturday